Welcome, everybody. We are so glad that you have joined us on this podcast, and we're hoping that it serves and ministers to you well. This last week, we had a great time looking at the temptation of Jesus, where after the high point in his life, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he is tempted there by Satan. Lots of powerful lessons that we learned, and I heard, Mike, that your message was absolutely fantastic. What were some of the things, as you look back and reflect, what was it that you felt like people locked onto and they said, this is what I needed? Um, <laughs> well, one, I think they stayed awake, which, I, you know, I'm always shooting for. Uh, number two, there, there's, you learn so much about God and you learn so much about, about life in his kingdom. And one of the things we were talking about was, how in saying no to the temptations, Jesus um, shaped the form not only that his messiahship would take, but the kingdom then that follows and comes after it, um, what shape that takes. And in a world that so values power, control, dazzling, so on, um, there's the sense that Jesus reputed it. And he went for obscurity and humiliation and shame and suffering and all of this stuff that we just don't like or don't equate with glory. Um, and then and then that works its way down, not just for Jesus and, and how he's presented, but it works its way into our hearts. And uh, the, the sense that, you know, we had one hand that was, was opened and represented something we wanted to grab hold of, and another fist that was closed that represented something I'd taken hold of and was causing me to want to run to control or self-reliance or bargaining and deal-making with God or just ultimately uh, taking a shortcut. And I think the power in going over the temptations is that Satan doesn't do anything new. What he did with Adam and Eve is what he did with Jesus is what he does with us. And to be able to see and articulate the lies that sit behind these temptations and to also recognize how it is that Jesus actually combated them and then embodied the better alternative, I think really equips God's people for the ability to see and, and to live a little differently in life. I think that's right. We, everyone knows what it's like to be tempted. And one of Satan's greatest lies is obviously it's not wrong to be tempted. But it sure feels like I've done something wrong when I'm tempted. <laughs> totally. And so Satan twists that in us and so that we automatically, because there's a desire or a thought, and then he says, look, you had that desire. You have that thought that he's fan supercharged. So we feel dirty automatically right. when we're tempted. And then he comes in and pushes harder. But what I saw people love is that twofold thing that we talked about that helps people in temptation. It is to walk in the spirit and to be in God's word is the way that we manage it. So Jesus was surrendered, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But then he said, it is written, it is written. And we are so excited because as a church, we're spending time in God's word every day. That's right. And so it is the powerful sword of the spirit that then the Holy Spirit uses to cut the lies of Satan, to down, to basically control those desires that get running away. And it helps us manage the temptation in the world that we face. So I think that people found practical tools, a way of thinking that really helps them day to day in all of our lives. I needed it. I know the people did. So we had a great weekend. We have some questions. And so, Mike, I'm going to ask you some questions because this mm. one is a big one. How would you explain the threeness and the oneness of God in an Old Testament context? Interesting. So not just New Testament. This person's interested in the Old Testament. Yeah. The, the surprise is that the, the, and this is a question about the Trinity, and for those of you that are newer 
to the conversation. The Trinity is the understanding uh, that God is three. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet there's only one God. So ultimately, you have one God essence shared by three personalities. And there's just a great deal of mystery, and we can speculate about how it all works. And for 2,000 years, church councils and church theologians have wrestled with it. But one of the surprises as I came into the faith was that there are, the, there are hints of this all over uh, the Old Testament. The first hint you get is, is one of the first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And the word God there is Elohim. And Elohim in Hebrew is a plural word. So you have in the beginning, plural God, created singular. So this God, in a plural sense, did something singularly, which is an interesting thing. And then later on in the book of uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, uh, it talks about male and female being uh, united in relationship, and the two become one flesh. And the word one is the word ikad, which is a word that um, means a, a unity made up of composite parts. Now, that's interesting because there's another word, yakid, uh, that is Hebrew for a singular monolithic unity. Now, if I've lost you, here's the point. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the clearest definition of the oneness of God uh, in the, something called the Shema, which was a Jewish prayer. Hear, O Israel, hear, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. This was the huge gift of the Jewish world to the polytheistic uh, cultures of the ancient Near East. And the word one here is the same word that's used. It's ikad. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 that means a one made up of a plurality of parts. So even in the clearest declaration of oneness, there are these hints of plurality in the oneness. There were other Hebrew words that you could use that just meant one and only one, but even in the clearest declaration of God's oneness, there's this tantalizing hint of more than that. So let's make it even more practical, Mike. Um, I'll talk to the oneness, you talk to the threeness of God. God in his oneness says to his people, you've come out of Egypt and in Egypt, there were many gods. And so you relied on a sun god, a god of fertility, a god, you know, all of these different gods that you would look at. And they were used to looking in many places for help. And the idea of oneness is God saying, I want you to come to me and I'm alone. I alone am the one That's God right. that you need to depend on for everything that you need in life. It isn't that you go to three, four, five, six, seven, eight gods. You come to the one true and God. And I'm the God that isn't geographically defined. Back then, it was the God of this region or the God of this valley or right. the God of this area. Or this area. God that brought one power. So That's this right. God is all-powerful, brings all things. That's right. the value of oneness. Right. What is the value of threeness? Why do we need a God who is three. That's a great question. The value of threeness is you see this beautiful picture that Jesus most um, most specifically articulates about this inner relationship. This the, the, the fact that we're made in the image of a triune God means that we are relational to the core. The, to be made in God's image means that we are tiny echoes of what is true of him fully. And one of the things that's true of him fully is that he lives a life of, of interdependent community in Father, Son, and Spirit. And you get this out of John in, in uh, John 17 when Jesus talks about what we 
shared before the world began. It's this incredible thing where the Father is glorifying the Son, the Son is glorifying the Father, the Spirit brings glory to them both. It is incredible, and it's what we're made for. That's why Adam and Eve, there was no suitable helper outside of another image bearer for Adam. So you get this sense that the Trinitarian life of God is in, in a in a tiny infinitesimal way, what we are created to participate in and why we need each other. The only thing not good in the garden was man was alone. And that's a huge deal because in the first chapter, it's, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. So it's jarring in chapter two when it says it was not good that the man was alone. And the reason it wasn't good is the man was made to participate in a small way in this kind of relationship that God has with himself. That's great. So while we can't give uh, there is no complete answer that begins kind of the conversation. That's right. The second question they have is, can you list some rabbis uh, that I could research on the web who taught m the Messianic passages of the Old Testament prior to 400 B.C.? There is um, a book I would recommend called Meet the Rabbis by Brad Young. And uh, he will give you a great overview of rabbis from Second Temple Judaism prior to that, but specifically after that as well. Okay, one of the things that we're doing, and for those of you on the podcast, uh, you'll get to hear this first. As a church in the spring, we're switching to the NIV 2010 version. Now, some people will be frustrated because it's like, didn't we just go to the NLT? We've been in the NLT ten for years 10 years. Ago. And, com you know, the language shifts. But we're very excited about the NIV 2010. So, Mike, you researched this for us as a I church did. and spent a lot of time uh, looking into this. So tell us specifically, what is so good about the NIV 2010 version as opposed to the NIV, which has got to be 40 years or yeah. something old? So what is it that, why are we switching? What is so valuable about this 2010 version? Uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, we get to take advantage of, of uh, new scholarship they, we are constantly finding manuscripts, whether they're biblical manuscripts or historical manuscripts that show us how words were used um, back in the first century and prior to that. And so we're always gaining clarity on shades of meaning and nuances of words. Uh, and so there are some things that I just think are much clearer in this version than they were in the old version. The second thing is that they are translating words that are, have a general meaning, like mankind, they're translating it now humanity. So it's gender neutral. It's much more inclusive because when I teach and the text says, I tell you brothers, but it means brothers and sisters, I always tag on the sisters because that's what it means. And it's nice to have um, in some ways that I think will be very inviting for people outside of the faith, have that built into what the language meant to begin with. So I think you've got some, some great updates. I I think that it, there's no translation that's perfect. Every translation is going to make uh, uh, judgment calls uh, based on their philosophy of translation. But I am confident that this is the best translation. And we you're got. excited about it, Mike. You're I'm very excited confident. about it. Tell me why you're excited. Just personally, why you're excited about the 2010 version. Um, I, I love the old NIV. I've grown up with it. It's, it's the one I've used to teach with. But there are these nagging things that have just, I wish they'd change this. I wish they'd change this. And there are a bunch of those taken care of. But secondly, anytime God's people can re-engage with the Bible in a different way, I'm all for it. I think it's very powerful. I personally, in my devotional time, read from a different translation just so that it's not getting locked in. So these words I've heard a thousand times before. And then the last thing is whenever you're publicly preaching or teaching, 
um, from a Bible. You're not only teaching the Bible, you're teaching about the Bible. And one of the things I think it says to our church is that we have such confidence in it, uh, no matter how it comes to us, but we also want to really engage and be sensitive to cultural trends uh, and um, the historical uh, pickups that we've gotten along the way that can say to folks, listen, we're getting more and more clear on what some of this stuff means. I'm excited about it too. The NIV 2010 doesn't come out literally in a book form until spring. And so we'll introduce that in our churches. But right now, as we do the reading of the chronological Bible uh, on the iPads, iPhones, or the way we're doing it together, if you just take it on your bookmark, we're going through, if you do it in technology, we're using the NIV 2010 version. So it gives you a chance to be introduced to it. Yep. Well, we're almost out of time, Mike, but I hear lots of fun things are happening down at Mission Viejo. You're crowded and jammed. What's going on down there? Uh, we are absolutely thrilled to have some of the best problems you can have, which is, which are, excuse me, um, a bunch of people that are inviting other people. And so we are absolutely out of room. A bunch of volunteers that aren't being utilized well enough. We, I'm amazed at the kind of people that are coming. I love that it's a broad range of people. I've got, um, we've got folks that are there that are very, very young and not Christian at all, and folks that are very mature in their faith, uh, and either started there or have been a part of Mariners and just moved down there. Uh, it is an amazing mix. And the thing I'm, I'm very excited about is to be able to create a, a church that infects the culture for Mission Viejo, that, that shares uh, all, the, all the DNA uh, with mariners in common, but is also an exp a fresh expression of what God might want to do in that community. And so the thing that's so exciting to me is that these are people in that community, for that community, and there's just a, a very profound sense of excitement uh, as we step into this. Uh, we're excited about it. There's lots of stuff going on. And if you want to sit on the floor, because that's all the space there is, <laughs> go on down there. All right. Any all right. last words? No, um, uh, no. Okay. Well, God be with you. Thanks for joining us. This is a great way to spend a few minutes together. Thanks for coming. Bye.